Everyone loves a parade. Uh, that's the old saying, everyone loves a parade. I guess it's because parades are usually associated with uh, good times. Uh, parades are celebrated with celebrations and giving thanks for someone or something. Uh, last weekend here in Dubbo there was a parade for local girl Megan Dunn. It's all about celebrating the fact that she'd won two gold medals at the Commonwealth Games. Anyone go to the parade? There you go. Looking at the photos in the Liberal, it looked a bit more like a communal bike ride down the main street than a full-blown... The intent was the same. It was all about celebrating something, all about honouring someone. Now, friends, this morning in our countdown to the most quoted Psalms of the New Testament, we've reached Psalm 118. Uh, We've reached a Psalm which, along with last week's Psalm, is the equal most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it's a parade Psalm. Did you notice verse 27 on the, way to, on the way through? The Lord is God. Remember, Lord capitals, that's Yahweh. Yahweh is God. He has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. There's a procession going on. People are being urged to join in and come along. What we've got in this psalm is a street party. We've got a public procession. A festal parade. What's the parade for? Who's behind it? Well, the context of the psalm is again a helpful starting point for us. And hopefully by now you have noticed in this series that context does matter in the book of Psalms. Uh, They're not randomly organised. They have a deliberate pattern. They certainly have an order to them. And so last week I put up this summary slide to show how the book fits together and how early on in the Psalms, the first two books of Within the Psalms, there's an emphasis on the struggles of King David. And then in the second two books, you move away from King David and onto God himself as king, almost giving the impression that after all the struggles of the first couple of books, the human king of God's people is almost swept under the carpet as a bit of a disappointment. But then last Sunday, God's king was back. Remember that? He was back bigger than ever. He was back as an almost super king, super priest king who would conquer the world. Now, friends, Psalm 118 fits into Book 5 of the Psalms, and it fits into this context because it seems to be a psalm celebrating the victory which God has given his king. Now, we're reading a little bit between the lines here because a king is nowhere mentioned by title in the psalm. But there's some clues to the fact that a king lies at the centre of it. For example, the, the, the psalm starts with general words of praise about God, but it very quickly zeroes in on one particular individual to whom God has given victory. But the victory of this one person seems to have had repercussions for lots of other people as well, because they're asked to join in the celebration. This central person seems to therefore be a bit of a representative figure in the way that a king's victory has a flow-on effect for his subjects. In the psalm, we'll get to it in a tick, there's also all these references to God's right hand doing mighty things, which has echoes of last week's psalm. Remember the priest king who sits at God's right hand and who conquers the nations? Within its context, this psalm reads like God's victorious king celebrating. Celebrating within the setting of a public procession and celebrating big time. 
Because look with me now at how the content of the psalm unfolds. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. The psalm opens with thankfulness, elation over God's unending love. And just in case you missed it in the first verse, that phrase, his love endures forever, gets repeated, doesn't it? Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, his love endures forever. In fact, the sort of repetition here sounds like it's intended to be a responsive type of thing happening. That in verses 1 to 4, the the leader of the procession would be saying the first bit and then everyone else in the parade would join in and chant, his love endures forever. Let's give it a go. Let's see if we can get the vibe of this. Hopefully you've got your Bible still open in front of you. I'm going to read the first bit of verses 1 to 4. And in each case, I want you to join in by saying the last bit, his love endures forever. Okay, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That's not bad. I reckon they were a bit more excited. Just a little bit. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Let Israel say. Let the house of Aaron say. Let those who fear the Lord say. Bit like a cheer squad hyping up the yeah the but after all this chanting and hyping one another up, the topic changes a little bit in the psalm in the procession, because from verse five on there's now mention of anguish, there's mention of opposition, there's mention of enemies. Uh, verses ten and eleven, for example, describe the psalmist as being surrounded. Uh, this central person in the psalm was uh, surrounded, swarmed around like bees trying to overwhelm him. And yet all this mention that now comes into the psalm of opposition, it is nevertheless overshadowed by continual mention of salvation. Twice we're told in verses 6 and 7, the Lord is with me, the Lord is with me. Twice we're told in verses 8 and 9, it's better to take refuge in the Lord, it's better to take refuge in the Lord. Three times we're told in verses 10, 11 and 12, in the name of the Lord I cut them off. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. And then in verses 15 and 16, uh, we're repeatedly told how the Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. So you got the feel of the psalm so far? It's a parade. It's a procession of people being led by one particular person, probably God's king, for whom God has given a mighty victory. And they are chanting and singing and celebrating this wonderful salvation. At verse 19, however, it seems that the parade now comes, they've been walking up the road, they now come to the front gates of the temple. Verse 19. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. Now the gates here probably refer to the temple gates because down in verse 27 it talks about the horns of the altar. Uh, The altar is the place in the temple where they would offer animal sacrifices and it seems as if the altar is the place that the parade is ultimately heading for. So the gates here sound like they've been walking up, verse 19, they've reached the gates of the temple. 
They call out for the gates to be opened and they enter. Before they get to the altar, though, something quite interesting is said in verse 21. I'll give thanks for you answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvellous in their eyes. Now that sentence about the stone the builders rejected, that's an intriguing sentence that sort of pops out of nowhere. It's saying that a stone that had been previously overlooked, previously discarded, has now become a stone of greatest honour in something new. It's a little bit ambiguous as to what it's referring to, though. The stone the builders rejected, uh, could it be a symbol? Is it perhaps a reference to the person at the centre of the psalm? The person that God has given victory to. That even though they seem insignificant, even though they look uh, a nobody and the underdog, God has yet given them victory, saved them from their enemies. Alternatively, it could be an actual reference to the actual capstone in the temple. Perhaps it's reminiscing about the fact that the temple itself had been built against all odds. The stone the builders rejected. Is it the person at the centre of the psalm who's leading the parade that God has given the victory to? Is it literally part of the temple? Not sure. Not sure what was originally intended. Whatever the case, for the people in the parade, they are now encouraged to enter the temple, to approach the altar, to make sacrifices to Yahweh. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and He has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. It's a great psalm. You've been able to picture it in your minds. It's all about a parade. It's a procession heading for and into the temple, being led by what seems to be Israel's king who is celebrating a mighty victory that God has given him. And as they approach the temple, there's chanting, And they're singing backwards and forth about how wonderful Yahweh is and how he's triumphed over his enemies and how he's brought salvation for his king and therefore to his people. And so the procession finally gets to the temple gates and they call out for the gates to be opened and they are opened and they go in and they make sacrifices to God and the whole thing is dominated with with shouts of thanksgiving and praise and and so the the psalm ends in jubilation, elation, verse 28. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God. God, I will exalt you. And then finally the psalm closes out exactly in the way it started. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. It is a heartwarming psalm. It's a parade psalm. It's a party psalm. And it's not surprising therefore that over time this psalm became one of Israel's favourites. It became one of the songs of praise that people used to sing during the Passover pilgrimage. Uh, Passover was the festival, uh, the party when Israel remembered their rescue from Egypt in the Exodus. Um, And each year, literally, thousands of pilgrims would cram into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And this was one of the songs they used to sing as they entered the city. Friends, this psalm that we're looking at, this last psalm in this, it is a much-loved and very familiar psalm to Old Testament Israel. And so it's hardly surprising that it also becomes one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. 
not only because it's of its popularity, but if ever there was a psalm that pointed to Jesus, this is one of them. And Jesus himself knew that. So come with me now across to Mark's Gospel and chapter 11. This is a chapter which Wayne actually looked at with us a couple of months back, but I'd, I'd like to revisit it again uh, now that we've got Psalm 118 a little more entrenched in our mind. Mark 11, let's pick it up at verse 7. Jesus is entering Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It's Passover. And as I mentioned earlier, people from all over Palestine in their thousands are making their way to Jerusalem in holy pilgrimage. Jesus and his disciples are among the crowd. And here, as Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, the crowds have gathered and they start singing the words of Psalm 118 and applying them to Jesus. That's what they're doing in verse 9 when they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words are from verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. That's not immediately obvious because Mark is quoting the Hebrew word Hosanna, which means save us. But Hosanna, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is straight out of Psalm 118. Because Mark is wanting us, the reader, to see that just like in Psalm 118 that we've just looked at, here again is God's king coming to his city to celebrate a mighty victory. Jesus is, in effect, reenacting the psalm. And he's about to reenact it with a twist in a way that no one is expecting. See, think back to the psalm. It's all about coming to the temple with thanksgiving and rejoicing. But what does Jesus do in Mark's gospel when he reaches the temple? He enters it okay, but in anger. He enters the temple to cleanse it. He throws over the tables. He kicks out the merchants. He is infuriated by what is going on in the temple. And the irony of it all follows into the very next day when after the crowds have sung Psalm 118 to him, the very next day Jesus quotes Psalm 118 back to them. He does it after telling the parable of the vineyard. That's the parable about the tenants of a vineyard who refuse to pay the rent. They even beat up the owner's servants when they come to collect the rent. They eventually even kill the owner's son when he arrives to call them to account. And after telling that parable, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. Turn the page to Mark 12. Mark 12, verse 10. Jesus is speaking at the end of telling that parable. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvellous in our eyes. And then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. 
Now, just in passing, notice that Jesus there uses the word cornerstone rather than capstone, which most of us have in our NIVs in Psalm 118. That's because uh, Jesus is quoting a Greek vert translation of the Old Testament that was quite popular at the time. So cornerstone, capstone, uh, lots of people get very worked up about what one it should be. The point is still the same. A stone that has been discarded has, is now an essential part of something new. But in quoting it here, in Mark 12, Jesus is in fact reenacting Psalm 118 in a way that Israel are completely unprepared for. For here's a king coming to the temple to celebrate a great salvation, but he is also turning out to be the stone the builders rejected. For he has come as their Christ, but they have rejected him. And therefore the greatest irony is saved till last. Because in Mark 118, remember the sort of culmination point of the whole process was to enter the temple and offer sacrifices in thanks. Jesus, however, we have a leader of God's people coming to the temple, coming to Jerusalem, not so much to offer a sacrifice as to be the sacrifice. Because this same crowd that cried, Hosanna, save us, in a few days they're going to cry out, crucify him. And Jesus will indeed be the stone rejected, crucified on a cross. In so doing, he will take the punishment his people deserve for their sin and he will indeed become a capstone for something new. A whole new people of God. A whole new forgiven people of God. Some of whom are in this room this morning. And it will indeed be marvellous in our eyes. And friends, the more you think about Psalm 118, the more extraordinary is Jesus' reenactment of it in Mark's Gospel. A festal psalm celebrating God's unfailing love. A parade as God's king comes to the temple to celebrate a mighty victory. A stone rejected by God but becoming the capstone of a marvellous thing that God has done. A procession to it to Jerusalem culminating in a sacrifice. It is hardly surprising that no psalm is quoted more than this one in the New Testament. It is all about Jesus on so many different levels. And look, I wonder whether that in itself is a lesson that we should be taking away from this psalm, indeed at the end of this entire series on psalms. Because as we've worked through the six most quoted psalms of the New Testament, time and time and time again, we've been seeing that they have always been about Jesus. Psalm 2 at the beginning... Jesus is the Son of God whom we must serve or else we will be smashed to pieces like pottery. Psalm 8, Jesus is the one crowned with glory and honour who restores the glory we have lost because of our sin. Psalm 22, he is the suffering king whose death in our place has triggered off a world-engulfing kingdom of salvation. Psalm 95, Jesus is the one we must not harden our hearts against. Psalm 110, he is the priest king who conquers the world and brings to an end the entire old covenant. And here in Psalm 118, he is the stone the builders rejected, but he has become the capstone of a whole new temple. The Lord has done it and it is marvellous 
in our eyes. And time and time and time again, it's been about Jesus. Which may itself be a good reminder for us, a good reality check for us. Time and time the Psalms have not been about us. They have been about Jesus. And if he is at the heart of God's plans and purposes, we, he really ought to be at the centre of ours as well. And if he's not, you are just so out of step with the way God thinks. And you are so out of step with what he wants in your life. It's like, you know, buttoning up buttons on a shirt. If you don't get that top button through the first hole, no matter what you do with the rest of the buttons, it will not look right. You've just got to get the first one right and, uh, or else it'll be a mess. And unless we get Jesus as our first priority, no matter what you do with all the other priorities, it won't work as God intended it. For God's purposes all through history have been leading to Jesus. His grand plan for you and I is to be part of the kingdom of which Jesus is the cornerstone. And therefore, whatever reason the psalmist had for originally praising God in Psalm 118, the words are doubly true of us. Friends, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. So give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. I'll pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of the centrality of Jesus Christ, our King and Saviour, throughout all these Psalms. Father, thank you that though he was rejected as Israel's Christ, Yet he has become the cornerstone of a whole new people of which we are able to be part of through his death and resurrection. Father, thank you. Father, we'd like to ask that you would help us to so shape and construct our lives so that Jesus would indeed be at the centre as he is at the centre of your plans and purposes. Father, help us to honour Jesus in the way we live. And thank you, for you are good. Your love endures forever. Amen.